Today is day two of our 2023 summer seven-day session. Uh, it's the 8th of January, and we'll continue to read from and comment on The Unborn, The Life and Teaching of Zen Master Banke. And this is translated and with an introduction by Norman Waddell. Uh, we'll take up where we left off. Um, Banke has traveled to Nagasaki to meet a uh, Chinese master, Dosha Chogen. And he was doing this in an effort to get confirmation of his realization. During their first meeting, Dosha confirmed Banke's enlightenment with the world's words, You have penetrated through to the matter of the self. After having said that, however, he added, But you still have to clarify the matter beyond, which is the essence of our school. To Banke, who was brimming with self-confidence, this was inconceivable. So firm was his belief that he had attained great enlightenment itself, full and perfect. He thus refused at first to accept Dosha's evaluation and told him as much. According to an account found in Dosha's recorded sayings, Banke looked at Dosha, laughed loudly, and then stalked brusquely out of the room without even making his bows. Still, he did not leave the temple. Instead, he stayed on for a few days, closely observing Dosha and the manner in which he instructed the monks under him. Banke soon realized Dosha's true merit, and he made up his mind to continue his practice with Dosha. In the months that followed, he went often to Dosha's quarters, where he no doubt had many spirited encounters with his new teacher, since Dosha did not know Japanese and Banke could not speak Chinese, although he could read and write it, they had to communicate by means of hitsudan, the exchange of written notes in Chinese. Uh, and then there's a quote, with brushes in place of mouths and eyes in place of ears. You can imagine that this, this could be... Um, quite cumbersome to have to communicate by writing notes. People who've had to do so in the kitchen will, will understand this. This is much more subtle issues here. Uh, it's still used, this, this method of communication is still used um, between, uh, for instance, in Japanese meeting, meeting somebody in Chinese, or uh, in China where the dialects spoken are so different in their pronunciation that um, people from one region may not necessarily be able to understand somebody from another region, um, but they share the same script. Uh, we, we had experience of this when we were on pilgrimage in China. We were in a train, and this guy wanted to talk to us. And when he realized that we didn't speak Chinese, he got out a pen and paper and wrote what he wanted to say on the, on the paper and then presented it to us thinking that we would 
um, understand. <laughs> of course, we understood even less than anything he had said. So um, this is this is the uh, a, tr a tried and tested method of communicating when with the shared um, knowledge of the Chinese characters. Banke took his place in the assembly and lived in the monks hall with the rest of the students. But he was unwilling to follow some of the customs of the temple, whose regulations were patterned on those in Ming Dynasty Chinese monasteries. He was particularly averse to the practice of chanting sutras in Chinese. When Dosha attempted to prove, uh, reprove him for not participating, Banke replied that the Japanese had their own monastic traditions and customs, including those having to do with sutra recitation, and he could see no reason to adopt different ones now. The only reason I've come here at all, he said, is because I want to clarify the great matter. How can I afford to waste valuable time learning additional ways of chanting sutras? Dosha did not bring the matter up again. The tolerance he displayed toward Banke here and throughout their brief association is certainly to his credit and speaks well of his essence, excellence as a teacher. One of, one of the um, uh, things that a teacher always has to work with is when to hold firm on, on rules and forms and when to yield and when to release. And... Um, no doubt Dosha could appreciate um, Banke's resistance to uh, learning a whole new set of chants in Chinese, so just to, so to, to conform with, with the customers at the temple. Because chanting, we see it as um, a skillful means. It's, it's, it supports us in the, the in the central thing, which is is our, our meditative inquiry, and it wouldn't this doubling up of learning the Chinese would not serve any great purpose, and so Dosha yields. The following year, on the 21st day of the third month, while sitting in the dark of the meditation hall with the other monks, Banke had another enlightenment experience. He left the hall, rushed to Dosha's chambers, took up a brush and wrote the question, what is the ultimate matter of Zen? Whose matter? Dosha wrote in reply. Banke extended his arms out. Dosha took up his brush, but before he could write anything, Banke grabbed it out of his hand and threw it to the floor. He then swung his sleeves and left. Um, swinging one's sleeves is a kind of um, uh, conventional way of expressing disdain or, or dismissal. The next morning, Dosha told the priest in charge of the monk's hall that Banke has completed the great matter. He directed him to move Banke to the position of a senior monk. The, the, uh, even today, uh, monastery, in Chinese monasteries, um, the sitters are arranged by rank in the, 
in the uh, zendo. So um, this was dosha re reordering the the order of rank in the in the zendo. You know. But Banke declined this distinction. He preferred his old place near the kitchen and continued doing his chores just as before, stoking the kitchen fires with fuel and serving the other monks their meals. Some members of Dosha's assembly seemed to have resented Banke's presence almost from the start. The biographies do not go into much detail here, but we may assume that this independ his independent attitude which the others took as an expression of disrespect toward their teacher, had something to do with their displeasure. In any case, when they learned that the master had acknowledged Banke's enlightenment, the undercurrent of resentment erupted into strong feelings of jealousy. Just as an example, his, his being allowed not to participate in the chanting would have, could have been seen as, as getting special treatment, this, this Johnny-come-lately. Um, people, some people may be surprised to hear of this sort of stuff going on, and this isn't the only instance of it in the in the records. Um, but wherever you have a human institution, you have uh, you have people of all kinds of uh, levels of understanding and an investment in in uh, power structures. When Dosha got wind of this, this um, foment in the in the community, he called Banke in to see him, and um, asked him to leave the temple for a while until things the quieted down, um, to avoid um, some kind of incident or or a break in the community. So um, Banke left. Uh, think of it being a little like um, the story of the sixth ancestor who who was a lay person from the south and um, the fifth ancestor uh, was going to uh, recognize him as his heir but there was he was um, Wenang was was um, hounded out of the monastery by by jealous monks and then went into into um, hiding among among common people for many years before returning to teach. So Banke had only been a little over a year with Dosha, and um, after this he went back to his uh, native promise of province of Harima. Then he proceeded from there to Yoshino, which is um, a mountain region, um, um, sparsely populated, remote, um, where um, it's been long been a place of, of uh, hermitage and uh, solo practice. Uh, some people may have come across a book about the mountain monks of Yoshino. Um, 
ascetics from esoteric Buddhism. So, um, Bhante joined this this community of um, put his own solitary hut in amidst the others in these very steep um, hills and narrow valleys. And uh, while he was staying in this area, he um, composed songs for the instruction of the peasants who he was encountering in this area. And um, this is the first recorded instance of him using the word unborn in his teaching. There is, uh, there is a translation of um, one of these songs in another book on Banke's teaching, Banke Zen, translations from the record of Banke by Peter Haskell. And um, the song is called A Song of Original Mind, Honshin no Uta. And one text suggests that he he composed the poem as instruction for the local children. Another explanation given is that it was to combat a severe, severe drought which afflicted the area. Banke had the villagers, lug and old, young and old alike, sing the verses as they danced at the local shrine. The result was a plentiful rainfall, and thereafter the performance of Banke's rain song became a local tradition. Um, it's quite it's quite a long song. It would mean quite something to memorize um, all its verses, um, but just to give people a take a little bit of a taste of it, um, get the flavor from some expert excerpts. And by the way, uh, Master Hakuin was also um, known for composing uh, teachings in song form for um, the illiterate peasantry to learn and recite. Here's a little bit of a start. Unborn and imperishable is the original mind. Earth, water, fire, and wind are temporary lodging for the light for the night. Um, earth, water, fire, and wind are the um, elements that our physical body is made up of, and so uh, a temporary temporary lodging for the night is is referring to our, our impermanent body. Attached to this ephemeral burning house, you yourselves light the fire, kindle the flames in which you are consumed. It's a powerful image. The, the, the burning house image, of course, comes from the Lotus Sutra um, for, as an image for um, our existence in this Saha world. Um, but you yourselves light the fire Kindle the flames in which you're consumed. It goes on um, a little bit later. Ideas of what's good, what's bad, all due to the self of yours. In winter, a bonfire spells delight, but when summertime arrives, what a nuisance it becomes. And the breezes you loved in summer, even before autumn's gone, already have become a bother. When you've got money, you despise the poor, but have you forgotten how it was back when you were poor yourself? 
how quick we are to forget when things are going well, the, the impermanence of the body and the um, fleeting nature of, of good fortune. throwing your whole life away, sacrificed to the thirst for gold. But when you saw your life was through, all your money was no use. Clinging, craving and the like, I don't have them on my mind. That's why nowadays I can say this whole world is truly mine. Your longing for the one you love is for the present time alone. It only exists by reason of the past before she'd come along. To recall someone means you can't forget not to recall them, that you never had forgot. Thinking back over the past, you find it was an evening's dream. Realize that and you'll see everything is just a lie. There's a little bit of that from, from Banke. This effort um, to find a way to communicate the um, teachings in a fresh manner to all kinds of different people. This was to become... Um, an important concern from for Banke. From Yoshino, Banke moved to the adjacent Mino province, where the following year we find him back after a five-year absence at his small hermitage, the Gyokuryo-an. Walking, working hard to dele, deepen his enlightenment still further. The following incident is interesting for the picture it gives us of the confident young Banke at the beginning of his teachings career. Sometime toward the end of the year, during the severest winter in memory, Banke somehow knew, through a kind of second sight, that his master Ompo was gravely ill. He set out immediately for, the, uh, for his temple to see him. At this time, a dozen other monks were living with him at the hermitage, among them a ranking disciple of the Zen master Daigu by the name of Sen. How could you possibly know that your teacher is ill, he said. He's in Ako, miles away, days away from here. I know, Banke said. Ha, you swindler, Blanke, scoffed Zen. But if you're going, I'll go with you. I've been wanting to pay a visit to Daigo anyway. Midway in their journey, Banke suddenly said, the wife of an old friend of mine just died in Osaka. Fake, said Zen. They, they, since their path took them through Osaka anyway, the two men made straight for the house of Banke's friend. The man hastened to the door to greet him. Three days ago, I lost my wife, he explained, exclaimed. Strange you should come now. During her illness, her name was often on your lips, on her lips. How extraordinary. Please come in, offer incense for her at the altar. Turning to Sen, Banke said, A swindler, am I? Sen stared in amazement. 
After I've been to see Daigo, he said, I'm going to serve you as a disciple for the rest of my life. By the, by the time that Banke got to Ako, though, his teacher, um, Umpo, had already died. But just before he died, he gave his successor, Bokuo Sogyu, the following instructions. I am certain that Banke is the one person who is capable of raising aloft the Dharma banner and sustaining the fortunes of Zen in the future. I want you, in my place, to push him out into the world. By no means should he be allowed to hide his talents. He, um, Banke does travel back to Nagasaki to um, seek out Dosho again, but the, there's political, um, temple political unrest there in Nagasaki when he gets back, um, where another, another Chinese master has come and is, is muscling his way into prominence in the area. And uh, when Banke learns of the, of the troubles of his former teacher, he does what he can to um, help, help him by trying to find a temple where he could reside and continue his teaching of, of his Japanese students. But um, in the end, it all came to nothing. And though Dosha remained in Japan for a few more years, um, he finally went back in 1658. Uh, it is said that before Dosha set sail to return to China, Lord Matsura, who was a, <coughs> one of his patrons, asked him which of his students had really mastered the essentials of Zen. Dosha is reported to have replied without hesitation, only Banke. Now, from this point on, his, um, uh, Banke's life starts to fall into a, a, a more regular pattern. Um, four years after Umpo's death, his, his successor, Bokuo, in accordance with um, Umpo's dying wish, makes Banke an, a, his, his official heir. Um, so he would be the next... Um, um, Abbot of Myoshinji, the the major branch temple of um, Rinzai, Japanese Rinzai Zen. The period of pilgrimage was over. While he kept to a rigorous life, striving constantly to perfect his enlightenment, Banke became concerned more and more with the spiritual needs of those people who were now coming to him for guidance in ever-increasing numbers. For the remaining 36 years of his life, he taught untiringly in temples and monasteries at a number of sites around the country. Some temples were built for him by wealthy disciples, but he restored many of them on his own. Three among them served as centers for these efforts to propagate his Zen teachers. The Ryumonji in his native Hamada, 
the Nyohoji, located in the city of Ozu on the island of Shikoku, and the Korinji, which was built somewhat later in Edo. Journeying back and forth between these three temples and the 40 or so other temples that he built or restored, Banke devoted the remainder of his life to propagating his teachings of the unborn and attempting to raise the fortunes of the Zen school, which for the past century or so had been at a low spiritual ebb. In 1672, at the age of 50, he succeeded Bokuo as the 218th head abbot of Miyoshinji in Kyoto. From his late 50s onward, Banke began to conduct extended practice meetings to make his Zen teaching more accessible to the great numbers of people coming to him for instruction. During these retreats, he delivered his talks on the unborn and held personal interviews with the participants, answering questions and dealing with the doubts and problems they brought with them. These meetings continued to be held until his death in 1693, usually twice yearly, summer and winter, for a period of 90 days each. So essentially, you can imagine a 90-day sashin, two 90-day sashins a year. Some of them were limited to his immediate disciples, who themselves numbered well in the hundreds, but many retreats were open to all and were attended by large clouds of priests and lay people of all ranks and denominations. Uh, then we come to the end of his life. Uh, the, he had been in an especially hot summer and with severe heat. And um, on one of his cheating trips, um, Banke began to show signs of illness in uh, the city of Hamamatsu and so um, decided to go straight back to his home temple. Um, Ryumonji. In the, in the morning of his arrival, he mentioned to one of his attendants that he would die within two months but to avoid causing alarm, he forbade him to tell anyone. On the day of his death, he gave some final instructions, and when he saw signs of sadness in some of his followers, he said, How do you expect to see me if you look at me in terms of birth and death? Someone asked if he would compose a death verse, traditional in the Zen school. He replied, I've lived for 72 years. I've been teaching people for 45. What I've been telling you and others every day during that time is all my death verse. I'm not going to make another one now before I die just because everybody else does it. After speaking these words, he passed away. He was in a seated position, according to one account, lying on his right side like the Buddha, according to another. I think this, this um, disagreement between the different texts um, is just a little reminder to us 
that um, these stories do tend to get elaborated and um, uh, embellished, so we, we can never be entirely sure about um, what is reflecting what actually happened and what is added later. Okay, so now we'll turn to um, some parts of his Dharma talks. And this first, the first um, ones we're going to look at are, are were given at um, the temple where he died, Ryu Monji. I was still a young man when I came to discover the principle of the unborn and its relation to thought. I began to tell others about it. What we call thought is something that has already fallen one or two or more reserves, removes from the living reality of the unborn. If you priests would just live in the unborn, there wouldn't be anything for me to tell you about it, and you wouldn't be here listening to me. But because the unbornness and marvelous illuminative power inherent in the Buddha mind is readily reflected, it readily reflects all things that come along and transforms itself into them, thus turning the Buddha mind into thought. I'm going to tell you those in the lay audience all about this now. As I do, I want the priests to listen along too. Let me just garble that final sentence there. Let me just repeat it, read it. Because of the unbornness and marvelous illuminative power inherent in the Buddha mind, it readily reflects all things that come along and transforms itself into them, thus turning the Buddha mind into thought. He um, likens our Buddha mind to a mirror that reflects everything that um, comes in its within its range. Not a single one of you people at this meeting is unenlightened. Not a single one of us here in this session is unenlightened. Right now, you're all sitting before me as Buddhas. You're sitting before me as Buddhas. It's wonderful when I come in um, halfway through a round, when I, after preparing Taisho, and see everybody sitting still, upright, focused, a room full of Buddhas. Each of you received the Buddha mind from your mothers when you were born and, no and nothing else. This inherited Buddha mind is beyond any doubt unborn with a marvelously bright illuminative wisdom. Um, there's, a, there's a footnote about these different terms that he's using here which are helpful. 
these three terms, Buddha mind, the unborn, and illuminative wisdom, because they're going to, these are going to pop up again and again um, throughout our, our passages that we're going to be looking at. The Buddha mind, Bushin in Japanese, is a synonym for the Buddha nature that is inherent in every person. The mind as it really is, in its original state of true reality or suchness, tatata in Sanskrit, which is prior to human intellection and discrimination. In Buddhism in general, unborn, fusho in Japanese, or as it usually occurs in a pair, unborn, undying, stands in contrast to birth and death, or samsara, the continuous process of generation and extinction to which a human is bound because of his or her illusion. In this sense, the unborn may be said to be synonymous with nirvana and untouched by the vicissitudes of birth and death. Marvelously bright, illuminative wisdom, rei mei in, in Japanese, attempts to express in English the marvelous brightness, purity, and clarity of the Buddha mind working in the unborn state, which Banke elsewhere calls the discrimination of non-discrimination, and which is totally beyond all logical calculation. This working is likened to a bright, resplendent mirror that reflects whatever comes before it exactly as it is in, in its reality. Can sometimes get a get a sense of this um, bright mirror as we walk in 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 Kinhin, where what we're seeing before us uh, us constantly changing as we walk. Not only that, but what we've just seen before is constantly erased. It's, it's really extraordinary when we, we pay attention to this. And it's so part of our experience that we can miss it. So again, this inherited Buddha mind is beyond any doubt unborn, with a marvelously bright illuminative wisdom. In the unborn, all things are perfectly resolved. I can give you proof that they are. While you're facing me, listening to me speak like this, if a crow cawed or a sparrow chirped or some other sound occurred somewhere behind you, you would have no difficulty knowing it was a, qu a crow or a sparrow or whatever, even without giving a thought to listening to it because you were listening by means of the unborn. If anyone confirms that this unborn illuminative wisdom is in fact the Buddha mind and straightaway lives as he is in the Buddha mind, he becomes at that moment a living Tathagata 
and he remains one for infinite kalpas in the future. Tathagata is, uh, means thus come one, and it was the way the Buddha referred to himself. And so the implication is um, we, can, we can, by living in this unborn Buddha mind, we can become living Buddhas. Once she has confirmed it, she lives from then on in the mind of all the Buddhas, which is the reason the sect I belong to has sometimes been called the Buddha mind sect, because he's referring here to Zen. Um, and he, he says this talking to all his assembly because um, although he was Rinzai Zen master, uh, people from all different denominations would come to his his uh, big 90-day retreats. While you face this way, listening to me now, if a sparrow chirps behind you, you don't mistake it for a crow. You don't mistake the sound of a bell for that of a drum, or hear a man's voice and take it for a woman's or take an adult's voice for a child's. <coughs> you hear and distinguish those different sounds without making a single mistake by virtue of the marvelous working of illuminated wisdom. This is the proof that the Buddha mind is unborn and wonderfully illuminating. None of you could say that you heard the sounds because you had made up your minds to hear them beforehand. If you did, you wouldn't be telling the truth. All of you are looking this way, intent upon hearing me. You're concentrating single-mindedly on listening. There's no thought in any of your minds to hear the sounds or noises that might occur behind you. You are able to hear and distinguish sounds when they do occur without consciously intending to hear them because you're listening by means of the unborn Buddha mind. Uh, there are other examples. Um, breathing. We, we continue to breathe when we're talking, when we're doing some, some complicated um, problem. We, we, we continue to breathe when we're asleep. Who is doing that? What is doing it? When people are firmly convinced that the Buddha mind is unborn and wonderfully illuminating and live in it, they're living Buddhas and living Tathagatas from then on. Buddha, too, is just a name arising after the fact. It's only the skin and shell. When you say Buddha, you're, really, you're already two or more removes from the place of the unborn. A man or woman of the unborn is one who dwells at the source of all the Buddhas. The unborn is the origin of all and the beginning of all. There is no source apart from the unborn and no beginning that is before the unborn. So being unborn means dwelling at the very source of all the Buddhas.
that, of course, there's always the rub, and he goes on to this a little bit later. Despite the fact that you arrived in this world with nothing but an unborn Buddha mind, your partiality for yourselves now makes you want to have things move in your own way. You lose your temper, become contentious, and then you think, I haven't lost my temper. That fellow who won't listen to me, by being so unreasonable, he has made me lose it. So you fix belligerently on his words and end up transforming the valuable Buddha mind into a fighting spirit. By stewing over this important matter, making the thoughts churn over and over in your mind, you may finally get your way, but then you fail in your ignorance to realize that it was meaningless for you to concern yourself over such a matter. As ignorance causes you to become an animal, what you've done is to leave the vitally important Buddha mind and make yourself inwardly a first-class animal. His, his references here to um, a fighting demon, an animal, um, he's, he's, uh, he's come out of the Buddhist cosmology There's a footnote on this um, that in in Buddhist cosmology we, there are ten different worlds or realms um, that living beings are classified into. Um, the lowest lowest three hell dwellers, hungry ghosts, um, animals, and then the, the next three uh, fighting spirits, asuras. Sometimes called titans, humans, and heavenly beings, um, and then uh, heroes of the Buddha's teaching, private Buddhas, Pratyeka Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, and and Buddhas. So, and ten different realms. The first six of these are the lesser ways. Beings in these various states of illusion are subject to transmigration on the wheel of existence. The last four are the enlightened realms of the saintly beings. The first three of the six lesser ways, called the three evil ways, are regarded as especially unfavorable birth, rebirth destinations. The hell dwellers constantly undergo a variety of torments in the different realms of hell. The craving ghosts suffer from, or hungry ghosts, suffer from constant unappeasable hunger and thirst. The animals are characterized by ignorance. The fighting spirits or assurers live in a perpetual state of strife. And heavenly beings live in constant happiness and know no suffering, but are thus never conduced to any awakening of religious aspiration. With both suffering and pleasure, in some degree, the human realm, alone among the six ways, contains the possibility of religious aspiration and attainment of Buddhahood. We can, we can see these as external um, realms or kingdoms or places, but um, as with uh, Banke here, we can also see them as aspects of our own human nature and that we, we, we create hell and heaven um, through our thoughts and, and actions.
And this is what he's describing here, talking about um, our unborn Buddha mind and how we we turn it into these different samsaric types of existence. By getting upset and favoring yourself, you turn your Buddha mind into a fighting spirit and fall into a deluded existence of your own making. You can see this this is a, a theme in his teaching, just having read that song he wrote for the children of the peasants. He talked about lighting our own fires of torment. So whatever anyone else may do or say, whatever happens, leave things as they are. Don't worry yourself over them and don't side with yourself. Just stay as you are, right in the Buddha mind, and don't change it into something else. If you do that, illusions don't occur, and you live constantly in the unborn mind. You're a living, breathing, firmly established Buddha. Don't you see? You have an incalculable treasure right at hand. We, we each have this incalculable treasure right at hand, right at, closer than, us, than the most intimate closeness we can have with anything. And we're, we're here, we're in Sishin, sitting together to uncover this treasure. We don't have to acquire it from somewhere, we, but we do have to work to clear away what gets between that, this treasure and our lives. The, the, this, this treasure is never taken away. We never lose it. We just um, cover it with the, the things that we transform it into. These, state, these different states, conflict and pleasure and hunger and craving. But it's always there. It's a little bit like gold that you can, you can uh, mold into any any shape at all. All the different forms that, that it can take on, but it's always gold. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. <clears throat> 